This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Sam VR, Caleb F., Emmeline, Susanna, and Levi. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. We'll start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Sam VR, who has a question about the days of creation. Sam asks, why do all the days of creation say, and then there was evening and there was morning the first day or the second day, but it doesn't use this formula on the seventh day? Sam, it's a really interesting question because you're absolutely right. If you go to the book of Genesis and you read the Genesis 1 creation account, there is this formula of words that is used to conclude the account of each day's creation work. And there was evening and there was morning the first day or the second day or the third day or the fourth day or the fifth day or the sixth day but not the seventh day. What makes the seventh day different from all of the others? Well, on the first day through the sixth day, God performs work of creation. So he makes certain things on those days. But on the seventh day, what's different is that God has rested from his work. So while there is a task being performed, on each of the six days of creation and taken all together, the world is made. On the seventh day, God rests, and that day has a different character than the days that went before it because God continues to rest. So the rest from creation labor hasn't ended. So for six days, God makes things. He speaks things into existence, But after those six days are completed, God rests from the work of creation. And the Westminster Divines say now God's work takes a different form. It's no longer a work of creation, but a work of providence, where he sustains the things that he made. And so God has rested from his work. In the same way that we are called on the seventh day, the day of rest, to rest from our labors. Now, here's what's interesting. If you read the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews looks at this rest that God takes after his labor, and he connects it with some words in Psalm 95, where God says, they will not enter my rest. And, And he takes this idea to say that there is a rest that remains for the people of God to enter into So there's a a rest that is coming in the future that the people will enter into that is like the rest that God has taken, a rest that he invites us into. And interestingly enough, when people talk about that rest and they talk about God's work of new creation, when Jesus comes again, they'll sometimes refer to that as the eighth day. So kind of interesting to see how those days work. So in Genesis Days one through six are days where God works. On the seventh day, he rests from that labor, but that rest is ongoing. 
and we look forward to entering into that rest ourselves. Now we have a question from Caleb F., who wants to know, what is the difference between tithes and offerings? At our Sunday morning services, we always have a moment where we pause and pray to dedicate our tithes and offerings to God. Because one of the things that we do when we worship God is we give gifts to Him. Now, the person who prays that prayer in our worship services is always one of the deacons of our church because the deacons have a special role in distributing those tithes and offerings and meeting the needs of the people of the church. So the question is, what is the difference between tithes and offerings? Because the way that we use those words, it often sounds like they're the same thing. We often refer to them together, tithes and offerings, as if they are synonymous. But of course, it's two different words, so there must be a different meaning in them. And and there is. So the word tithe is actually an ancient sort of archaic word that is a version of the word tenth. So a tithe is a tenth, or we would say uh, 10% of something. So the idea behind a tithe is that I am grateful for everything that God has given me, and I acknowledge that all that I have comes not just from my own labors, but from God giving me the opportunity and the ability to do that work and receive those benefits. So I take a tenth portion of that, or 10%, of what God has given me, and I return it back to him as thanksgiving. So that's specifically a tithe. And traditionally in the Old Testament, this is what people would do like at harvest time when the harvest came in. They take a tenth or a tithe from that, and they would give it to the the priests in the temple. They would surrender that as thanksgiving to God for giving them the gifts that they had received. And that tradition continued into the church as well. And so that's where the word tithe comes from. Offerings is similar, but has a different connotation. You might think of offerings as everything you give on top of that tenth, in addition to that tenth. So a tithe is a kind of offering, but there are other kinds of offerings or gifts that you might give So basically, the words tithes and offerings are used to describe all of our monetary gifts to the Lord, to the church, to God's service. So there is technically a difference between tithes and offerings, but we'll also often just refer to them as tithes and offerings collectively to suggest the the tenth that we render back to God and also everything else on top of that that we give to him. And now it's time for the big question, which comes this week from Emmeline. So let's give Emmeline a round of applause. Here's Emmeline's question. Were Noah and Abraham Jews following Judaism just like the Jewish people of today? Wow, Imelin, that's a great question. It's it's a little bit theological, it's a little bit historical, and it gives us a lot to talk about. If we go back to the book of Genesis, 
that's where we find figures like Noah and Abraham. And, and they're both really significant because of the fact that God enters into covenant relationships with them. Right? There's a, a covenant that God makes after the flood with Noah. And then there's a covenant that he makes with Abraham to bless the offspring of Abraham and really to bless the world through Abraham's offspring. Now, of course, that's happening in the book of Genesis, and there's a whole lot of Bible that comes after that. So something is established in the days of Abraham, but over time, God adds on to it, right? God reveals himself more and more over time. Now, we call that progressive revelation. And because of progressive revelation, we can look back at the days of Abraham and we can say to ourselves, even though there were a lot of things that we believe that Abraham would not have known, we still possess the same faith as Abraham. In other words, we believe in the same religion that Abraham believes in. Now, you'll see this throughout the Old Testament. So you think about Moses who comes after Abraham, and it's to Moses that the law is given. People who had that law of God, who had the tabernacle that was established in the days of Moses, they thought of themselves as sons of Abraham. They thought of themselves as worshiping the God of Abraham. They saw continuity over time, even though they acknowledged that in their days, things had been revealed by God and commanded by God that were different than the way things had been in the days of Abraham. So over time, although there is difference, they also see continuity. And that's important when we think about uh, whether or not people today have the same faith, the same religion as people in the book of Genesis, or even, let's say, in the days of Jesus. So if we fast forward a little bit to the days of Jesus, in Jesus's day, there is now a temple. Uh, there's the temple. It was built originally by Solomon and then repaired later on. And, and, and the temple in Jesus's day had been massively rebuilt by Herod not too long before that. And of course, that temple was going to be destroyed within a generation. So you might think in, in a certain respect, the Judaism of Jesus's day is kind of reaching its, its climax or its apex, right? Because after the destruction of the temple, Everything is going to be different there on out. So in Jesus's day, even though people worshiped at the temple and they had that whole sacrificial system that they had inherited uh, from the days of Moses going forward, they saw themselves as sons of Abraham. They took pride in the fact that they practiced the same faith as Abraham. The question is, did they? Did they? And that's the question that Jesus raises. It's the question that, that the Apostle Paul raises after him. What is it that makes you a son of Abraham? Is it just the fact that you are a lineal descendant, that you're sort of born into his uh, tribe ethnically? Or do you need to share the faith of Abraham? And if so, well, what, what is that faith? Exactly. What is it that Abraham had faith in? Because as Paul says, Abraham was justified by faith. He had faith and that faith was counted to him as righteousness. Well, the content of that faith, Paul would say, ultimately is Jesus. 
Or we might put it this way, that Abraham has faith that God is going to fulfill his covenant promises. And when God does fulfill those promises, he fulfills them in Christ. So that Paul can say a person who has faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is a son of Abraham, whether that person was born a Jew or a Gentile, because now through the grace of the gospel, both Jew and Gentile have become one in Jesus Christ. So that's how the Apostle Paul would see that. He would see continuity between the days of Abraham and the days of Jesus in his own time, and he would say that the faith that he possessed was the same as the faith of Abraham. It's just that it had grown. God had revealed more truth over time. Now, of course, the Pharisees did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They rejected him, and the Pharisees did not believe that the Apostle Paul was right when he made that connection. They believed that they were the sons of Abraham, and this is painting with a very broad brush, but, but modern Judaism sort of descends from the religion of the Pharisees. So you have to remember with the destruction of the temple, something really big changed. No longer did Judaism have the sacrificial system that it had had before. So things started to change instead of the, the temple, life was centered around the synagogue. And so there were huge differences over time. Now, of course, there were also huge continuities, just as we were saying before. And so I think if you were to ask a modern Jewish person, do you believe in the same thing as Abraham? They would want to say, well, yeah, I mean, there are differences, but we believe in the same God that Abraham believed. We just don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So there's there's a difference over the direction that that faith took but we claim that we worship the same God. Now, this is why you'll sometimes hear people talk about uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition. You'll hear them talk about Judaism and Christianity and Islam as like the Abrahamic religions, because all three of them make a claim to be inheritors of the religion of Abraham. And they can point to the continuities in their belief But of course, in order to answer that question, ultimately, we also have to take into account the differences. And as Christians, we look at the word of the Apostle Paul, and we recognize that in order to possess the faith of Abraham, you must believe in the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, a fulfillment that came to us through Jesus Christ. And now before we close, we have time for a couple of fun questions. Our first question comes from Susanna. She asks, how could Abel be a shepherd if his family didn't eat meat? Uh, Did they wear wool? Well, Susanna, this is an interesting question. If you go to the book of Genesis, you find out the professions of Cain and Abel, and Abel is, in fact, a shepherd. But what's fascinating about that is that we do know that that death has entered into the picture because after the fall, uh, God clothes Adam and Eve, and he he does it by killing an animal and giving them the, the skin to wear. It's not until after Noah 
in the covenant that God makes with Noah, that there's this kind of clear command to to eat the animals, uh, permission, as it were, to eat the animals. So a lot of people look at that and say, well, prior to the days of Noah, they wouldn't have eaten animals. So why were they raising sheep? Well, I think you've touched on a, a good explanation there, which is that you can be a shepherd and, and not eat the sheep. There are other things to do with sheep besides eating them. You can harvest their wool, you can shear them and make uh, blankets and clothing and that sort of thing out of them. And presumably that was the purpose behind Abel's flock. Our last question comes from Levi, who asks, what's your least favorite food? Well, Levi, there are a lot of things that other people think of as food that I do not think are meant to be eaten by human beings. For example, octopus, I don't think you should eat any sort of squid. Uh, raw fish, a lot of people like to eat raw fish. I'm not sure that we should eat that either. But if I had to think of my least favorite, like the, the thing that I just don't even want to think about having to eat, I would have to say my least favorite food is pickles. I think they look terrible. I think they smell terrible. I think the taste of them is terrible. So pickles are my least favorite food. Well, that's all the time we have for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions. <laughs>